Evening everyone, I'm Scott, he's Jace. So we are starting our first podcast on our Twitter account. Uh, we thought we had a lot to sort of say and felt that it was about time that we both came together um, to sort of sit down and really just discuss everything that's going on in the football world. You know, Jace has been keen to do this for a while and we've just decided that now with lockdown coming out and the Euros around the corner, it was about time that we we decided to do this. So, Jace, you there? With the shit show that is Tottenham, Scott has a lot to say at the moment. <laughs> You're probably not wrong. Probably not wrong, but we'll get... Based on the Euros, isn't it, mate? <laughs> yeah, well, we'll get to that. We will get to that, because I believe that is... Uh one topic of discussion today which funny enough I think uh, your own club Palace is involved in Jace I think we're at some point going to touch on the managerial shake-up that's been going on over the the past week uh, maybe a positive discussion for yourself but not so much for me would you agree yeah I mean your one your situation deserves a podcast on itself so um, yeah. I'll probably do that solo and just argue with myself about it um, <laughs> because I can't seem to make two cents out of what on earth is going on over at the lane but um we'll see we'll get to that bit um but firstly i think we're gonna just give you a bit of an idea as to you know where where we've come from with this um i think jace you know it's going on what nearly 10 years now that we first set up total football debate is it about right indeed we, we set it up we wrote the idea down on a fire packet and we left it for 10 years and finally thought now we've been cooped up in the house for too long we better do something about it with it that's true, and neither of us smoke, so that was a uh, that's interesting that we managed to write it on a fag packet. But yeah, it was a little bit of an idea. I think while we were both at uni, um, we both came up with a bit of a project. Funny enough, while doing a course, and we decided to sort of run with it um, as part of a project, a small little team uh, that we've managed to keep together. And now we guess we 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 decided that it was always something that we really enjoyed doing. We always have over the years, you know, over the what the fifteen odd years that we've known each other now, loved a good old football discussion. Um, and it seems like you know the the discussions on Twitter and all kinds of different platforms are just constantly getting bigger and bigger. And we wanted to be a part of it, so we thought it was about time. And what what better time to do it when the uh, when the Euros is literally about to start on Friday. So here we are. Well, you hope. I mean, Phil Hmm. Foden's dyed his hair looking like Gaza, so he seems to think it's coming home. It's coming home. It's coming home. Coming home. So what we got coming up, Jace? Where where are we going today? Well, so we'll discuss the England squad. Um, Yeah, I guess so. I don't think there was much debate in the end, but I guess the biggest debate now is how Southgate lines us up to get us through the tournament. Um, there's many, I mean, the defence probably picks itself, but there's debate with the midfield and how we line up up front, so that'll be interesting. Um, we'll then look at the Euro, the groups. Um, obviously, UEFA mm. complicated the tournament and updating it, so yeah, make sense of um, what the implications could be for the certain groups and how they line up. And then... Um, we will, as we alluded to at the beginning there, cover off the managerial go-round that has been in the going on, well, not just in the Premier League, but across Europe over the last few weeks. So, um, Elevated more match. so today, I'd say. More yeah. so today. Um, we, are, we are doing this recording just in case anyone sort of is listening to it further down the line. We're doing it on, you know, it's, what, quarter to ten, Tuesday the 8th. So, 
today is definitely a day where there's been some massive developments in the managerial realm. So, you know, I don't think it's a bad day to do the recording. Um, unfortunately, I would have loved to have been doing this recording with uh, Spurs managerial mess sorted out, but that's for another day. But I think you might have your, uh, your club's problems solved today, Jay. So well, that would be... Look, I, uh, as a Palace fan, and as you well know, as I always tell you over the years, you never say it's definitely done till it's done, but in yeah. intents and purposes, it's the right noises. So um, yeah, it definitely yeah. seems so. Um, so we'll get we'll get to it. That'll probably be more more your your thoughts on that because at the end of the day, you know, you're a Palace supporter. It'd be good to know what you think. Um, I've got my thoughts, um, which I haven't let on to you yet. Uh, we kept things quiet. So, but I think first we're going to go to the England squad. It's been out now for what has it been? A, has it been a week already? It's been out, or has it been a little bit less than that? I think it's been about it'll be a week on Wednesday, won't it? So it's not week on Wednesday, yeah. So week tomorrow. Um, so I guess we'll come to that. I mean, I've got it up in front of me, Jace. It's actually a week today, to be fair. Week today, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, so you know, with the friendlies out of the way and the injuries out of the way, you know, I think we've got our nailed on. 26-man squad, which I've got in front of me here. So I don't know, should we should we go through it or should we assume that everyone knows what the squad is and just go straight into our take on what we think? Yeah, I think it's been well documented. I mean, to be fair, as I say, I think it's been well documented. I think we can talk through. I think the biggest talking point for me is that, that the midfield and, and the forward line, I think the defence, there's a good mm. I'll say that. It's quite tough all round because uh, there's been a few late shows with, um, you know, Mount in the Champions League final for Chelsea, of course. Reese James had an absolute worldy performance out of nowhere, so comes back in contention there. Um, mm. So, yeah. Your favourite think... Ben Chilwell's in there. It'd <laughs> 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 be good to know what you think of him this year. So, um, I know you're not the biggest fan of him, or you wasn't. Um, whether he surprised you or not over the last year with Chelsea, we'll come to that in a second. Um, but I guess we'll work our way down then. So, let's start with the goalkeepers. And uh, I mean, there's the obvious exclusion with Nick Pope, which is a shame. I mean, I don't know about you, but I thought he was a serious contender for probably starting in between the post personally. Um, but you've got Dean Henderson, Sam Johnston and Jordan Pickford. So I think I'm the same as you, to be honest. Um, I think Pope was probably the, um, the, he would have definitely hands down been the number one choice for me. Personally, mm. I think whilst Pickford has his plaudits, he's not had the best season for Everton. He's been very inconsistent. And quite honestly, um, Dean Henderson... Has he done enough to cement number one spot? There's a lot of hype on him and he there appears to be a lot of self-hype around himself. Um, I, don't, I, th- I think it's probably the best of an average bunch, if I'm honest with you, mate. I don't. Sam Johnston, consistent goalkeeper. West Brom obviously got relegated, but his performances you know, were there and he made a couple of great saves in the, uh, the friendly against Romania as well. But... I think there you're looking at, you know, really and truly once Pope was ruled out, it's kind of, you're kind of picking the worst bunch, to be honest. I don't, I'm, neither of them fill me with much hope or elation, to be honest. But If Nick Pope was there, who would you have left out? Uh, for me, um, probably, again, as a Palace fan, it's probably the wrong way to, wrong way to look at it, but... Probably Sam Johnson, just that fact. West Brom yeah. relegated. Henderson would have been, you know, 
he's played a few games for United. The calibers, you know, is is higher there, and you know that kind of thing. So um, yeah, I think it would, that would be easy. That he's the one that would give way, but. Um, yeah, I think Sam Johnson's just a bit of a victim of, you know, being at the wrong club yeah. because I, I wouldn't deny that he is any worse than Jordan Pickford, to be fair. I think, you know, again, you know, this is something and I think I saw that, you know, the TFD Twitter account said something along the lines that Sam Johnston was was being linked with bigger clubs and I think deservedly so, probably. Um you know, you're only as good as your, your back four in front of you, aren't you, when you're a goalkeeper? Um, and at the end of the day, if you have 20 shots fired at you and you save 15, there's still a chance you could have seen five. So I, th- I, I do think he's, he's he deserves to be there in a sense, but I do think he could stake his claim a little bit more if he was at a bigger club. Whether he will ever go above who I personally think should be our number one goalie and that's Dean Henderson I think Pickford for me has he 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 makes me nervous I mean don't get me wrong that save he pulled off was was brilliant from Sabitzer against Austria but he's just got it in him you know that that moment of madness which England always seem to have at any kind of major tournament not not specifically goalkeepers but I mean, David Seaman would probably argue that, but generally, I do think Pickford at any moment could just be that catalyst, as as well as our defence, and we'll come to that in a moment because that's another problem for me. Yeah. Um, but I do think we've got that ticking time bomb. For me, it's quite um, ironic, you know, we that golden generation, we had the defence and the goalkeeper, you would have said, even with David James at the helm, you know, you had John Terry's, Rio Ferdinand, Ashley Cole. We've, we've literally had it all the wrong way round. We, yeah. we, had, we had a period where our goalkeepers and our defence was always solid, whether it was Gary Neville, Ashley Cole, you had your Lee Dixon's moment, um, you know, our centre-backs was a pick of the crop. I mean, at one point you could... You know, Tony Adams wasn't even getting in our back four, which says a lot for how the calibre we were always lacking in midfield. And then we had the golden generation, which, I mean, it still blows my mind that we're not there. Um, and I think this time round, you know, the, the, the midfield into attack, although midfield very limited, it's still pretty decent. Um, but I'm just nervous about that back five. Well, it will be. I guess the defence will be a back five and a goalkeeper, I'm assuming. So, um, I mean, do you think it will be five at the back or three, five, two, whatever way they're going to do it? Or Yeah, I mean, he seems... I mean, for me, I'd pick a flat back four straight off the bat. I don't think... Right, OK. That, for me, is how you get the best out of the midfield and attack. Because when you're looking at, you know, the strengths of this squad, it's definitely not in the defence. So, go on then. So, you've got... I mean, who? firstly, who's your goalie? I mean, Pickford has to be the one in goal. Um, right, OK. For me, you'd have a back four of Walker and Stones on the right side. Begrudgingly, because there isn't a lot of other choice, I believe <laughs> may not be fit for the first couple of weeks. You've got to go Mings, who, for the life of me, whilst he's got his plaudits at Villa, he's not that level that you need to win a tournament, in my opinion. Um, mm. And then left-back, to be honest, I feel like it's 50-50. Chilwell, obviously, I mean, I've never been his biggest fan. But... That's an understatement. 
But, uh, you know, you've got to say on paper, that's probably, that left side is probably a tough decision for Southgate to make. Interestingly, I haven't mentioned him, but probably unfair, Kieran Trippier. Mm. Um, can play left back, can play right back. Obviously, off the back of a brilliant World Cup, um, he came back and had a, if, I mean, you'll know better than most, but I think it's fair to say he had a blow pass season at Tottenham. Um, but he's gone to Atletico and um, to all intents and purposes, I think he's a little bit of a victim of the fact that he's not playing in the country that he's representing now, but he's had a good season at Atletico. That, that he got himself a ban though, didn't he? He got himself that gambling ban, which ruled him out for so many games. And I think yeah. that tarnished his season, to be fair. I mean, credit to him, you know, he, as soon as the ban was over, he was back in the side. So I think that speaks volumes for Simeone, but what he thinks of him. But yeah, I think I think that that kind of didn't help. I've got to be honest, I mean, I'm, I'm doing it from a Spurs point of view. And as much as I bleed Spurs, you know, when I do this show, I will be as neutral as I can be and, and give a pro and a con to everything. As, um, um, and I, I'll, I'll say this, I'll come to Carl Walker in a, in a bit because that was straight away someone that I personally wouldn't start but I do think Trippier did live off that Croatia moment for quite a period of time and it could have even gone to his head a little bit when he came back to Spurs but um, so you've got Pickford, Walker, Stones, Mings only because Maguire's out um, so I'm assuming when Maguire's fit you'd have him straight back in there. Look I've seen Maguire seven or eight times against Crystal Palace and every single time I've pulled his pants down. So he's only there on the basis, you know, he's only there on the basis for me that he has to be there because there's no other option. But yeah, but yeah, I agree. What I have with Maguire, and just to clarify to United fans, it isn't because he plays for United, purely for the fact that he's good on the ball. He's good mm. to have and handy to have at set pieces. But if you get pace running at him, game over and that for me I know defenders can't have it all but when you're talking about a big game defender that can you know you, you look in the the calibre of your Van Dykes your, your Vincent companies you know mm. I don't I don't rate him he's not in the same bracket he's not 80 million pounds worth of centre back oh, I don't disagree with that I don't disagree yeah. with that at all I, I think I think you're bang on with that evaluation and I I don't even think Man United fans would disagree with it don't get me wrong I think he had a pretty solid end to the season but there was a period where I think Man United fans were smashing their head against the wall when they had the Lindelof and Maguire pairing um, I don't think now, they were very happy about it at all but whilst we're still on the subject of the defence I may be a little bit biased because he used to play for Palace but one name, and I know... I know exactly where you're going to go with this, no. and I had this discussion with Man United fans the other day, and I personally think he would have been ahead of all of them. I know, I know he struggled initially at United, but you've got to say, again, talking to a few United fans myself as well, this season, he has really come into his own at United and found himself. In a big game, you know, you're playing the likes of France, Germany, Portugal, the top, top teams. For me, I would pick the one that is more defensively versed than the one that is more attackingly versed. And he has that in abundance. And I'm shocked, absolutely shocked, that he wasn't, he's not even been in contention. He's not even been, you know, called in for the friendlies or anything. Um, this, is, this is my problem. His name was just never even there from the moment 
things started to come out about the Euros that I even thought the reason his name wasn't mentioned was because he declared himself for an, valid for another national team or something like Zaha did with, with Ivory Coast. That's how surprised I was that his name wasn't even mentioned because, I mean, people have said that, you know, Wan-Bissaka was on par with Luke Shaw this season. Luke Shaw kind of elevated it a little bit more because I think he, and I think that was down to the turnaround in his, in his fitness, his body shape, his energy, his desire to just overcome everything he's had, his injuries. So I kind of think Wan-Bissaka has been, you know, kind of gone under the radar a little bit because of that. But again, and I'll come to this in a second, there's a couple of players there on the right side that, I would have had him above and maybe, you know, uh, that might be a, a topic of discussion and we might see why that should be further down the line. But when I read out my, my starting 11 in a second, I'll explain why I don't think, you know, a certain player should be our right back. Um, and again, some people will call me biased because he was a Spurs player. But <laughs> when you, when you watch these players inside out, you do pick up their flaws um, and, yeah. you know, said right back that I'll come to in a moment has a massive, massive flaw. So, I mean, I'm conscious that we, you know, with time and whatnot, with it only being a 15 minute discussion or so. So jump in. So you're going four, three, three. So you've done your back four because you yeah. said sure and sure will could be a 50, 50. You don't really mind. So Midfield, who are you going? Who's your three in the mid? So, I mean, you look at midfield, to be honest. So let's look at the options first of all. So you've got Jude Bellingham, Jordan Henderson, Mason Mount, Calvin Phillips, Declan Rice. For me, Jordan Henderson should be nowhere near the start of 11. Um, Would you start him if he wasn't injured? I've I've never really rated him, to be honest, but he did prove me wrong in the last World Cup. So um, maybe yes, just on previous merit. But mm -hmm. that's a very, very, very soft yes. Um, okay. Calvin Phillips, again, not to piss off any Leeds fans, but... <laughs> You're I, doing a good job. I, I, I person, personally, I don't see the hype in him. I, I don't... I, maybe okay. I've not seen enough of him, but I don't see the hype. If you're going for a 4-2-3-1, I'd go for Bellingham and Rice, and then your, your three would be Grealish on the left... Foden on the right and Mount as the number 10. I feel like England's strength lays in that offensive, that front four. That I think that's critical for England's chances in the tournament. I really feel like with Bellingham, he's he's the one that could really come out of nowhere. Along with Foden, to be honest, you know, we've got two great youngsters there ready to step up. But I just feel like this is the tournament that Southgate needs to allow the shackles to come off a little bit and make sure that that front four are the key components and the key cogs because that's what's going to win us the games. And on their day, if you come up against a France or quite plausibly a Portugal in the round of 16, they're the players that can hurt. So for me, it has to be about that. I'll quickly summarise mine um, and then, you know, then we'll, I guess, go straight into the actual groups and discuss that for a bit. So for me, I mean, I personally would have gone Henderson in goal. 
that would have been my choice. Um, as I said, I've already got my concerns about Jordan Pickford and I'm just not willing to take the risk. I think Henderson's done very well um, and he's got that pressure. Yes, he hasn't played in front of fans, so maybe he could have had more pressure, would have buckled. But um, I, I do think he's, he's, he's nearly there. Right back, I mean, if Wan-Bissaka was there, I, this is how confident I am that I would, I probably would have picked him. I don't believe Carl Walker is, I mean, I, I can't argue he's, he shouldn't be there because, you know, he's, he's part of a Man City side that are dominant, but whether Man City fans agree or not, his pace gets him out of so many sticky situations, it's ridiculous. Um, I always said that the better fullback for Spurs at that period of time was Danny Rose. I'm going to maybe throw out a bit of a spanner in the works and say I probably would be 50-50 between Reese James and Kieran Trippier. Mm. I think Trippier's got a bit more of a defensive game. Maybe he can play in a, in a game against Croatia, but then I'd probably let Reese James go in a game whereby we might find we've got a bit more, you know, attacking attacking play, whether it's Czech or Scotland. That would be my right-back. Centre-back, Stones picks himself. I mean, again, and Maguire would be my centre-back if he was fit. And then the rest of it's a bit, you know, Connor Cody. I think he had that one great period. And then Wolves fans were kind of like, you know what? Nice. He might not be as good as we thought he was. Ben White's had a good season, but still, I, I don't think he should have been in the squad. Not with the player that was left out, because I think Ward Prowse should have been there any day. Um, so I probably would agree with you and go Ming's worst case. And then left back, I agree, it's 50-50. Chilwell or Shaw wouldn't mind, to be honest. Midfield, I'm going to change it up a little bit. I want to pick Bellingham, but I feel like he can offer a bit more from the bench as well. No, um, come on. And, I know, I know. I mean, I love the guy, and he, he was brilliant the other day. But I just think we the could be. Had a, he's had an absolute stormer. I know he's, he's had an absolute stormer, season. but and there's a he's reason why, and I'll, I'll come, <laughs> I'll come to it in a second because I would say, I mean, Declan Rice is hands down. Picked? Let me, let me, let me let you finish. Who, who have you picked for your kind of two or three midfield? Go on. Right. Okay. So I'm going Declan Rice in front of the back four. Um, I'm going to change it up a little bit and actually say I would let Mason Mount be the middleman. This could change with the groups because I, I do think we should get out of this group easy. So I'm not trying to be reserved here. Um, maybe what formation you, are you playing? What formation? I'm probably going a 4-2-3-1. Fair, okay. Yeah, so I'm going Rice and then Mount. In front of Mount, I'm then going Foden because I think Foden is more dangerous and Man City have even played him as a centre-forward on occasion. I do think he has got that. I think countries will fear him. I really do. I think he could be a goal. He could be someone well, that gets Kane, on the score well, sheet. Well, presumably, you've gone for Kane up top as well. Uh, he's um, got to be up top, yeah. And you would have then Spurs with Kane. He tends to float, and sometimes he comes back to midfield and plays part. I think, yeah, I think Foden. You might find Foden further ahead than Kane, to be honest. I think yeah. Foden will do what Ali did for that period of time, where Ali was even further forward than Kane in most games. Then I'm going Jack Grealish on the left. I think he just offers something completely different. And then this was the tough one because I don't think Sterling's had a good season, and I probably would give it to Sancho. 
mm. on the right. I don't think we need to be cautious in the groups. Um, maybe if you look at who we could end up facing, we should try and deliberately finish second. <laughs> because I don't know if you've seen who we're due yeah, to play when we well, win the, the group. But... Are Portugal or France, isn't it? So I mean, Portugal, well, it's Portugal, France, or Germany. Yeah. Whoever whoever finishes second in that group, we will face if we win. Whereas if yeah. we finish second, we will face the winner. Um, I think it's either the winner or runner-up of Spain, Sweden, Poland, and I'd much rather go for that. <laughs> but then again, you well, want to be the best. You've got to beat the best, so hey-ho. Well, this is the thing. I mean, we'll get on to this later, uh, well, in, in a second, but um, I'll keep that for, for the next bit. So I guess we'll, we'll go into the groups then. So this is kind of a bit of a tough one, I guess, Jace, because the one thing, I, I don't know if you've taken this into account for this Euros tournament is... I guess some countries have home advantage, which is a bit unusual, you know, yeah. when you hear that certain countries are going to be playing in, I mean, England, for example, in Scotland, Spain have got one. I think they're playing in Sevilla. So there's a couple. I don't think I've looked into it that much. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to try and keep it neutral and, and not focus so much on who's playing where. Um, I'm, just going to just, I'm just going to give my take on who I think, you know, has got a good squad and, and history, I guess, speaks for itself. So we'll start from top to bottom then. So Group A, you've got Italy, Switzerland, Turkey and Wales. What are I you mean, thinking? There's one outstanding candidate, Italy. I think they'll fly yep. through that group. In terms of, mind you, they probably won't be seen so much as underdogs. But I actually think Turkey will be the other ones that go through. From yeah, do you know what? I, it wasn't until I started looking into it that I sort of realised that, you know, Turkey have got a couple of players in there. You've got, um, you know, Soyuncu, you know, with Leicester winning the FA Cup. You've got Yaziki and Yilmaz, who are, I don't know if you know were key in Lille's title-winning team. Yilmaz has um, been absolutely brilliant. Burak, yeah, he's been absolutely yeah. brilliant. And Yaziki as well, he's been brilliant. You've got Hakan Kalanoglu, who was awesome as well for AC Milan until they kind of dropped off. So uh, Selic, he was a, a right-back as well at Lille. So they've got a pretty decent team, which I didn't really pick up on. They're in a good spot with their squad, I think. Yeah, I don't know if you agree. I mean, Italy, you know, they they I can't believe this. Their back two are still going to be Benucci and Chiellini. It blows my mind a little bit, but they have got a pretty decent lineup. Um, young players as well: Chiesa, Locatelli, Barella. They're all really good, and you've got Insigne, obviously, and Immobile is quality also, um... for Lazio. But Bastoni as well, who plays yeah, for Inter. I actually think we'll come on to this a little bit later, but I, I actually think for me, Italy are probably the ones to watch in terms really? of the dark horses. I, I really I probably, do. I probably wouldn't have gone that far, but I mean, they've got a decent team, and you know, Mancini's the coach, you can't say he hasn't got history himself. Um, so are we in agreement that Italy and Turkey will go through, and are you happy that Italy will go through top and Turkey second? Yeah, I think Italy and Turkey. It depends. Ultimately, I don't know what the route means for them, but I think, you know, Italy will probably come out flying on that one. Yeah, I mean, you've, yes, you've got Switzerland and Wales. Switzerland's team hasn't really changed over the years. No. And Wales, it's just it's just Bales, isn't it? That's it, really. Yeah. Um, so I can't see them really doing much else. And then I guess you come on to another group which is pretty much more of the same. Group B, Belgium, Denmark, Finland and Russia. Yeah. 
again, Belgium, the standout candidates there. I think they'll definitely, they'll probably end up, or they will end up winning the group, I'm sure. And then probably Denmark, Russia are in there. Russia can be a tough team to beat. So they could, you know, they could throw the cat amongst the pigeons for Denmark. But I think it's a, a fairly even toss up between Belgium and one of those two going through. Uh, I, I I think Denmark are through. It wouldn't surprise me, you know, if Denmark go uh, end up being one of them countries that just somehow gets quite far in the competition, you know, especially with Hoiberg, Delaney and Eriksen in the midfield. That's a pretty strong three. You know, their defence, I mean, Vestergaard doesn't even supposedly make their starting lineup for centre-backs, which I think is pretty good depth. It's just whether the attack is good enough because... Other than Paulson, who plays for Leipzig, you know, I don't really think they've got much more of an offering. I mean, Dolberg's there, but he doesn't really make the starting lineup either. So, Russia, I just think, I just think they they've had the same team for the last ten years. I I don't think they've got enough on them, uh, and I don't. I I just think Finland are one of those that you know they're a bit of a sort of taking part team. I, I know I've got we've got a few Norwich fans that will hope that. Pookie has a great tournament, but I, I can't see it. I, I no. really can't. I think it's just down to Denmark and, and Belgium there. Mm-hmm. No, agreed, agreed. Group C, again, I mean, for me, it's it's again a bit more of the same, I think. Uh, you've got Austria, Netherlands, um, or Holland, as I call them, Macedonia, or North Macedonia, don't want to offend anyone, and, and Ukraine. For me, I know what you're going to say here, so... Netherlands, you're going to say, are probably the standout candidates to go through. And then you've... Do you know what? I thought that, to begin with, because, I I mean, I, I asked you this question, who are your two teams that you follow? And mine is obviously always going to be England. And if Greece are in there, then they would have been it because it's my other nationality. But Holland were always my team that I follow. But I still think they're a bit of, bit of transition. And I'll, it might surprise you who I think will go through top of that group. Well, I think... Holland have a chance of not going through at all. So you think they could take one of the third spots? I think they could be the third spot. Um, right, Austria okay. Have a, you know, you've got Sabitzer in there. If it, you know, he makes them tick. In previous tournaments, to be honest, Ukraine have been a fairly tough nut to crack. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be because I'm a Palace fan and we had Frank de Boer for um, all of four games, but he was no pun intended, quite frankly, terrible. You look at his record for Holland, I think he lost, he won one of his first six. So he's he's managed 11 games for Holland now. Um, and he's won five, drew four and lost two. So he's hardly set in the world alight. And I think most of those wins have come, you know, in the fairly recent games and stuff, because I know it was a struggle beforehand. As I say, he didn't win in his first kind of five or six games. So... I actually don't think that group is as clear-cut as many would traditionally think with the, you know, group with Holland being involved in. Um, mm, I think I think the only reason, and I know I said we would touch on it, but I do know that Holland have home advantage. I do think that will help them because, you know, they're playing in the Amsterdam Arena. It's a great, great stadium. I do think that will get them through, but I... I know, you know, they might not have looked great against England, but I do think Austria could take it. I just I think they've got a, a couple of players. I think Sabitza and Alaba will carry that team. Uh, and they've got a good few players from, you know, Bundesliga and things like that who have had a great season as well. So 
I do think it will be down to them too. Um, but I do think people will think it's a surprise that Austria won the group. But I think Holland have lived off the back of their name for quite some time now. I just look at their team and yes, they've got great individuals, but they've always been a team of individuals. Yeah. Always. I, c- I still can't believe they never won a tournament at some point with the team that they had, but I think that was their problem. So I think that tees that one up, and now we're on to the big one. So you're on to Group D now, England, Croatia, Scotland, and Czech Republic. Clear cut for you? Yeah, I think so. England, Croatia, um, Scotland fans will, you know, berate that. But, you know, Scotland will be a stern test. As will Czech Republic. They've got a good little team, Scotland, you know. Look at their team, they're not bad. I mean, we only beat Scotland, I think it was in the last minute. Was it a couple of years ago when we played them in the qualifiers? It's one of my most anticipated games, that one. I think England-Scotland could be just unbelievable. Um, And I hope Scotland are up for it. And and you know what? I wouldn't even go as far to say I, I, I hope Scotland do well. I'm not one of those that really you know, want Scotland or Ireland or Wales to fail. Uh, you know, that seat, that year when Wales were oh, come on, going all the way, I loved it. Abs- nah, I, I really don't mind. I mean, I'm, I just like seeing the, the, you know, them sort of countries do well. Yes, when it's England, Scotland, I want England to ruin them, but so I suppose I would be more than happy for Scotland like to get through. England, Wales, Scotland and Greece, if they were all in a tournament, you wouldn't lose, would you? <laughs> No, I mean, I wouldn't support them. Greece would always be... I mean, I can't believe I've seen Greece win a Euros before England, to be fair. That blows my mind. But England, Greece and Holland were always my three. But I've just always had a bit of a soft spot for, you know, if Wales are doing well, Ireland doing well, (laughs) Scotland. I don't bother me at all. Um, (laughs) I mean, podcast is not for you. Maybe not, maybe not. Maybe after the England-Scotland game, maybe that'll fire me up a little bit more. But, yeah, I mean, come on. If we don't win the group, then, well, saying that, if we don't win the group, I hope it was kind of planned more than anything because, as we've already touched on, in a way, are we setting ourselves up for disaster if we win the group? So so the, the problem you have for this approach, and I know this has been talked about a lot, but, you know, you go into that Croatia game, you win that one, and then the, I think the second game is it Scotland, isn't it? The second game, I think so. Yeah, I think it's Scotland. Yeah, you have to go into that game wanting to win, you have to, like just for the sheer occasion of it. Yeah, um, so I think we might fall into a trap unknowingly. You know, we'll win the first two games, which because let's be honest, if we draw against Croatia or lose, that could set us up for disaster, full stop, where we might not even make it through. The problem you've got for me as well is this. is I don't know too much about Czech Republic, if I'm honest, but, you know, Czech Republic are no walkovers, so a couple of draws here and there, it's a dangerous game. So I don't think you can afford to be... For me, I think you alluded to it earlier, I think if you're in a tournament to win it, you have to beat the best anyway. There's no point, you know, yes, you kind of want the easier route like we did for the World Cup, but then ultimately against Croatia... When I'm unstuck, yeah, I'm unstuck, and yeah, I, I agree we should win that group. But just to paint a bit of a picture for those that don't don't really understand what we're alluding to here, if England win the group, we will face the runner-up of Group F, which is one of Hungary, Portugal, France, or Germany. Now that's a three out of four chance we're getting. Probably, let's be honest, three of the top five favourites of this tournament. 
Mm. Would you agree? Portugal, yeah. France and Germany, you'd have to say they are, along with maybe, as you say, Italy or Spain or Belgium, they are probably in the top five favourites for the tournament. And that's that's the knock, that's round of 16. That's not even quarterfinals. Whereas if we finish runner-up, which is a risk, we won't eat... I, I mean, I was surprised by this, but we finish one runner-up. We don't even face the winner of Group E, which would you'd assume would be Spain. We face the runner-up of Group E, which would probably be Poland, Slovakia or Sweden. Probably. So that's the, it would be one of those three, wouldn't it, if Spain finished <laughs> Well, yeah, but then again, you don't know what Spain's coming because I don't know if you've yeah, seen their squad, but they're not, they're not looking as strong as they once were. But then again... That might be a bit of a refreshing sight for Spain at the moment, but it is a concern. I've got to be honest because France will we'll get to that group in a moment, but I, I just don't feel like that is where we want to be. But then again, if we're good, we're going to have to do it at some point. It just doesn't look it. Would you give Southgate? All right. I'll ask you this question before we move on to the next group. England go into round of 16, winning the group unbeaten. We come up against one of France, Germany or Portugal who have finished runner-up and we go out. Does Southgate get sacked? Um, or is he given the benefit of the doubt that he's probably had the worst possible outcome he could have got? Well, uh, assuming the fact his remit is to win a tournament or progress in a tournament... Yeah, but there's a difference, isn't there? You know, if we'd have come up against France, Portugal and Germany in the semis or the quarters, they just sound better, do you know what I mean? But to go out in the round of 16... Does he... So, okay, let's say he goes the other way to avoid that nightmare scenario in the round of 16. Does he then get sacked if that doesn't work out and ultimately he ends up stumbling anyway? Because my concern with this... um, You know, I know... Southgate will sit there and they'll try and kind of navigate their route through to the tournament and stuff. And, you know, some people might think I'm crazy for saying this, but ultimately, do you risk undermining the player's confidence and winning mentality and mindset going into a tournament, knowing, obviously everyone's talking about it, the potential scenario you find yourself in, but is there not a risk that they try and create that artificial scenario themselves so much that actually you end up not getting that scenario at all and actually end up dropping points in games that you should have won. Yeah, I agree. I think Guardiola versus Chelsea in the Champions League final. Yeah. I'm away from what you naturally would do as a coach normally or a manager and you play into the opposition's hand. And the thing is, if you go into any single one game at not 100% effort, as the Premier League shows every time, and as tournament football can be so brutal, you'll get punished. So if we go into that Croatia game thinking, oh, because let's face it, really and truly, Croatia, in order to get what you want, you probably want to draw against Croatia, beat Scotland and beat the Czech Republic, right? But then mm-hmm. on the flip side, a, a Scotland win against Croatia, you know, something like that could change the momentum. So personally, I think it it's... You do your best. If you finish second, great. If we finish top, great. But, you know, bring on Portugal, bring on 
Yeah, I mean, the, the benefit of winning the group is the knockout game that we then go into against Portugal, France or Germany. And, and, and look, we're ruling out Hungary here, but there's a chance it could be Hungary. Who knows? Um, but that, that match would be played at Wembley. So we're in front of our own fans then, which... And then you have to ask the question, if we went into that match at Wembley against one of those four teams and then we won, what does that do to the England mindset if we've then all of a sudden potentially beaten one of France, Germany or Portugal in the knockout. I mean, what else do we then do? You know, there's no reason other than just bottling the occasion that we can't then go all the way because we've then already done one of the hard... Because, I mean, what I've just looked at here, as you were were talking about there, if we finish runner-up of that group just to get an easier tie, we play that match in Denmark, right? Which is a neutral ground and... All it does is get us one stage further if we then win that win that easier game because we then end up coming up against the winner of Group F, which is again one of France, Germany, or Portugal if they beat third place. And this is where the competition for me gets a little bit stupid because I can't tell who third of Group A, B, or C will be. But you would imagine that France, Germany, or Portugal, in my opinion, I think they could beat any one of the teams we've just listed in Group A, B, and C anyway. So, you know, we're only going to get one stage further to the quarterfinals, and then we don't end up even playing Portugal, France, or Germany at Wembley anyway. Let's let's quickly brush Group E out the way because I think that's a pretty straightforward one and then we'll get to that group of death because that is, let's be honest, that's the talking point for England um, because it looks like we're going to come up against them no matter what way we approach it. So, I mean, Group E was Poland, Slovakia, Spain and Sweden. I mean, is that is that set in stone for you, the two Spain, that are yes. going through there? Spain, Poland for me, Sweden yeah, again. Same. Sweden again, they might sneak in depending on other results, but they're the two. They've still got Sebastian Larsson playing. I think that just shows where they're stuck at the moment, Sweden. Um, no, no disrespect to Sebastian Larsson, but because they've got a good few players, they've got Isaac up front for um, Real Sociedad. I think he's a great player. Um, they've got a few options on the bench, but I do think, you know, I mean, Poland have got Lewandowski. <laughs> um, I, do, I just think they might have a bit too much you know, for for Sweden and Slovakia. Spain, yeah, I mean, I, I can't see Spain not finishing top of that group with their team, even though it's been completely changed. I think they've got a still a great, great lineup there. But now, OK, here we are. So France, Germany, Hungary and Portugal. So I'm going to ask you the big question. In your opinion, who's winning that group? For me, it's between France and Germany, and I'm probably going to go with I'll go Germany just because Germany are top top tournament team. I'm going to surprise you, I think, and I'm not just doing this to be different. I personally do think France are going to be too good to not finish top, but I do think Germany will will be in the knockouts, but only because I think they might finish in third spot. But then again, if they finish in third spot, this is the difficult thing with this group because at the end of the day, the the teams that go through in third, it's the ones that finish on the most points. Well, if if Germany lose to France and Portugal, they're they're pretty much out. Um, But I do think Portugal could throw in an upset there. And I do think their squad is one of the best squads 
in the whole tournament. The depth that Portugal have is unbelievable. I mean, when you look at the fact that Yao Felix and Andre Silva are on the bench, um, you've got obviously their defence, you know, Pepe's still there for experience purposes. They've got Ruben Neves, can't get in the team. Um, Renato Sanchez, who had a title winning season with Lille, can't get in the team. And then they've got obviously Ronaldo still there, but Bernardo Silva, Yotta. Um, Bruno Fernandes, Canseo at the back, Diaz at the back. I just think they are unbelievable. I, I think their team could go a long way. I think they're very unfortunate they've landed in that group because it's one of those groups where if Germany and France go through, I wouldn't be shocked, <laughs> you know. You grant what you said about Portugal, right? But you've got an agent, Ronaldo. He doesn't have the pace that he used to. Jao Felix... Inconsistent. He didn't have a great season. Fair, fair play. Yeah, Yao Felix didn't have a great season. Um, um, this midfield, year. More interestingly, the midfield. Now, granted, I don't know a lot about the midfield, but let's go through. So, Bruno Fernandes and Bernardo Silva, granted, decent, you know, decent on their day, and they're probably the two standouts there. But Jao Maltinho, 34. Ruben Neves, not really done anything this year for Wolves. Do you know what Portugal have got? And this is where I think they've kind of gone back to basics a little bit. They've got, and I've, I've kept a close eye on sport in Lisbon this year because, you know, just from, from knowledge of like, and it sounds stupid, but, it you know, when you've played things like your management games and stuff like that and you, you just notice players, right, when you, they just appear and you think, oh, okay, that player's popped up a few times on, like, you know, prospects and stuff. And I kept a close eye on them and they've got a couple there, um, you know, Pedro Goncalves, I think he's one of the, the most highly rated midfielders and I think they've got Sergio Oliveira at Porto as well. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if one of those get in the starting 11 rather than just your typical Yao Moutinho. I think Moutinho will start because I think he's one of the experienced players that just will be in the lineup. Yeah. Um, I do think there'll be a couple of players for Portugal that we might go, oh, take note of that. You know, when you come out of the Euros, hoping your team's going to buy that player. So it might be ones to watch. But yeah, I mean, as we say, it could be any way round. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if your, if your prediction comes to fruition, to be honest. So... That's the groups, really. I mean, there's no point going into all the knockouts because I don't think we've got a head around the whole third place tournaments and stuff like that. So if I was to throw in a spanner in the works before we end this one, who do you think is getting golden boot? Ooh. <laughs> I mean... Do you think Kane could wrap up a golden boot in the group stages? Unfortunately for him... I don't think we'll play the fluent football we need because Croatia and Scotland are the two games where I think Southgate won't want to lose them. And I think mm. tactics will dictate that. I actually think, depending on how far they go, Lukaku of Belgium. Right, OK, yeah. You know, they've got a group in there of Denmark, Finland and Russia. He bags goals for them for fun, it seems, when they play friendlies or any other qualifying rounds. I think he could be a decent shout. France, Germany, Portugal, all that group makes it hard, I think, for anyone like Mbappe or Ronaldo to really kind of get going in that group. So, yeah, I think Belgium and Lukaku for, for Golden Boot would be my backing. Mine is a bit of a, a dark horse. And if anyone's got a spare quid, 
to put it on, I, I would look at it. I feel that because of the group that they're going to come up against and because of the path they could end up going, you know, I think they've got a bit of an easier path than others. I'm going to throw in to the hat that Gerard Moreno could be golden boot winner for Spain. Mm. I mean, you look at the season he had at Villarreal. I just think unless he doesn't hit the ground running and they decide to make a change and throw in Morata um, at centre forward, which kind of ends his tournament, I think with the players around him, I think he could be on. He could be onto a a bit of a winner there. Um, I know you've got your obvious candidates, your Mbappe's, your Benzema's, and as you say, your Lukaku's and your Harry Kane's. Um, I do think Southgate. I mean, then again, Harry Kane. You know, he did he did do it in the last tournament, but I do feel that it's definitely up for grabs for Moreno. And I think he could be one of those surprise players that no one really thought of yeah. because the obvious it's ones are there. 50, 51 to one on Skybear. Mm. That was my point. Yeah, that was, that was what I thought. You know, Kane six to one, Lukaku seven to one, Benzema 16 to one. Moreno, the starting striker for Spain is 50 to one. And he's got Ferran Torres and Dani Olmo or Oyarzabal with a midfield of what? Thiago, okay, Pedri. Mm. I just think he's he's on to something there. And it's 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 a it's a quick, you know, it might be a nice little earner. You never know. I mean, he's six to one to be top team goal scorer. I mean, <laughs> you know, he's that's the odds of Harry Kane getting golden boot on the whole tournament. So I, I just think that one might be overlooked. I'm just going a bit of down a different route than just picking the obvious there. But I saw it earlier and thought, you what? I'll have some of that. So, yeah, little little spanner in the works for that one. Interesting, interesting, interesting take. You, you said the golden boot. Who's your money on to win the tournament? Yeah, well, that was that was literally what I thought you might you might ask. Ugh, I, I I've got to be honest. I do think France will do it. Something something just tells me that they're not done yet. I think they've still got that team that Spain had, where for a you know a period of time they're good enough to to keep it going. They might not win a tournament as they didn't with the Euros when Portugal won it, but they soon bounce back. I just yeah, I I, I think France it's France's turn now to do it. I think for me, so I've got them down. They're obviously the favourites, and I think ultimately they they probably end up will probably end up winning it. But I think the dark horses that no one has spoken about, and maybe it's a little bit of a loving because I've been following Syria a lot this year. And yeah, you're going for Italy, are you? I, I think Italy are the ones to watch. Mancini's gotten playing some good football, some really good football. Think they could be the ones to watch. Well, we'll see because their first game, aren't they? Friday night. I mean, that's not a bad little game. The first one could give a bit of a glimpse as to how they're going to perform in the tournament because you know that that first opening game I do think could show a lot of what they're capable of because let's be honest, it's the two favourites in the group. You know, Turkey v Italy. What a game! Turkey could flex their muscles a little bit and show us you know they might be dark horses as we've already highlighted with some of their players but I, I just think Italy even though they haven't got the experience of when the squad haven't got the experience I just think the nation are winners there's something about Italy that they just they just never and you know we can say this they just never fuck off 
<laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, other than that one terrible World Cup that they had, they just never, they never disappear. <laughs> so I think, I think they, I think you're right. I think they could, they could do something, but I just don't know whether it's this, this squad or not, but we'll see. We'll see. Come, come Friday, we'll know where we stand with them. So I guess we kind of go on to the last topic of uh this sort of first episode jace which is and i know we keep joking about it um oh, the managerial man. shake-up yeah you know i'm gonna say it the managerial um, merry-go-round yeah that's what, that's what whatever let's be honest whatever we call it is it, it's a mess the whole thing is an absolute mess regardless um I mean, I, I I wouldn't... Palace we're going to have it easy recruiting a new manager, but, and, you know, it seems like to all intents and purposes, we may have our guy, but it's um, muddied the waters a little bit and threw the cat amongst the pigeons. I'll give them that. Well, I think, I think let's be, let's be honest. Every, everyone we're probably going to, every club and everyone we're going to talk about right now pretty much has some kind of negativity attached to it. That's how much of a mess this summer's been for, for clubs and managers at the moment. Mm. Um, funny enough, our two clubs are right in the middle of it. Um, I'd, I'd probably say that Spurs are in more of a mess than Palace, just simply oh, because well, of everything that's gone Palace, down Palace over the mate, past um, month. Ask any Palace fan, those are the old saying goes, typical Palace, and I don't think... Yeah, you know, I, I mean... You know, yours yours was a bit civilised. You know, Hodgson's retired. Fair enough. Now you've got to find a new candidate. Yeah, I mean, we've got a, quite a couple of topics to be honest in in regards to this this oh, merry go round, yeah, as you, you keep calling it. So, I mean, let's probably start with <laughs> the funny thing is we're going to touch on all these different managers and clubs, um, but only one of them really is confirmed. And that's got to be the whole situation with Ancelotti, Real Madrid and Everton. Um, I mean, I guess we can give our own neutral stance on, on, you know, this whole situation. But I don't know about you, but... I mean, here's the thing. It did look pretty, did it? It did not look pretty. I guess here's the thing. You get to the end of the season, you Ancelotti, Real Madrid come calling. You're managing in the Premier League for Everton. I don't think... Everton fans can particularly hold it against him. I know I might be different if it was me in that position, but... I think one thing that um, Everton fans... I don't think they'll argue um, this point. Um, and, you know, I, I've got a very close friend who supports Everton and maybe at some point I might actually get him on the show just to sort of talk about Everton in general. I think the, the hype was, was euphoric when Ancelotti joined, because as far as I'm concerned, as far as I can remember, I don't think Everton have ever had a bigger manager than Ancelotti. You know, when you're looking at level of class and, you know, he's one of the most successful managers ever. I mean, I guess you could argue at the time they got Ronald Koeman, his stock was fairly high. For what he did at Southampton, um, but no one, no one of Ancelotti's um, oh, no. trophy I mean, cabinet. A- a- Ancelotti, you know? by far and wide, was it was a statement signing, and that's what Everton needed. The problem you've got uh, now is is they start from scratch again, and where do they go? They've chucked a lot of money around for you know players and not enough. I heard. I think I think that was one of the one of the reasons. Um, I don't. I, I think. 
I think you nailed it on, you know, Ancelotti and Real Madrid are, you know, they're, they're practically lovers. You know, I don't, I think what Ancelotti done at Real Madrid, Real Madrid are in a position at the moment. <laughs> I don't think Real Madrid are often in transition, but I think they're very close to being. Oh, they're coming to that. To teeter, they're coming to the end where they're teetering over the edge and you're starting to think, right, okay, Benzema, Modric, Sergio Ramos, you know, that's a massive spine in their team. And their transfer dealings have been all over the place. Yeah, I saw an interesting thing when this all first came about, actually, and Everton fans saying, well, he'd surely much rather stay at us and win trophies. And you just think, if you're Ancelotti or if you're any manager and you're a manager in Everton, do you really think you're going to be challenging Man City to win the Premier League? And I think it's safe to say, again, no disrespect to Everton, but I don't think... That's the case. I don't think though they obviously um, didn't, you know, they're not going to, they've not reached the Champions League yet. And I say this because, you know, some Everton fans will say, well, yeah, you know, we can buy for the Europa League. That's fine. But you could argue with the amount of money they've spent, really and truly, they should be aiming for that top four. I mean, it's Real Madrid. There's no two ways of doing it. You know, if you've got a project at Real Madrid or Everton, for me, there's a, there is only one winner. I think it stings. I think that's that's the issue. I think Everton, you know, there was a there was a, as I said, there was a hysteria that here we go, this is our turn. You know, they've just been watching their their neighbours tear up Europe and the Premier League over the last couple of years, and they were they were like, you know what, it's our turn. And I hate to say this, but it was almost like Everton felt like it was not that. For any minute here, I'm saying Spurs have done anything with their with their time, whereby they've kind of gone above Arsenal in in present times, um, very close to it going back to how it was if Arsenal could get themselves sorted. But I think Everton were hoping that they were going to have their time to, you know, consistently keep up with the pack. And I do think they've been a bit unlucky with this season because it, I think the final table kind of reflects badly on Everton. They finished 10th, which in any other season you'd go, that's that is that's poor. But when you realise that Aston Villa had a good season and finished 11th, right, on 55 points, Everton finished 10th on 59, Leeds finished 9th on 59, Arsenal 8th on 61, Tottenham 7th on 62, West Ham 6th on 65. That's only six points. That's six points Everton finished off of, you know, West Ham. And, you know, it, any, it could have happened to anyone. And I think they need to look at that. I mean, let's be honest, you know, the situation at Everton, there's a similar situation going on at Spurs. You know, this is where I think, <laughs> yeah, and you're laughing because, you know, <laughs> I, I think I think there's a lot of, lot of clubs sitting there now looking at, specific teams in the league and going could we take their spot um because i think there's a lot of clubs that really don't know where they're going um think, next season i think if you're a manager and i know it's been touted that they've been speaking to conte depending on what you believe if you're a manager and you're free or you're at a club and you look at Spurs with a nice, shiny new stadium, news of Harry Kane potentially leaving, so your best player at the club leaving, 
an owner that is known not to um, spend the best amount of money, I think that becomes a very difficult job. And I do think Spurs are in this... I think this has gone a little bit under the radar. Spurs fans are new to it a lot. And I know a fair few Spurs fans. Um, but I really do think this next appointment is crucial for them because there are teams knocking on the door. It's not going to be easy. They've missed out on the top four again this year. It's not going to be easy to get back in. You know, the likes of Leicester will get stronger. West Ham have got Europa League football, London-based team, Olympic Stadium. It's a, it's a tough one and um, it's important they get the right appointment. But who they get is another matter. But I think, you know, whoever takes it is going to need assurances from Levy that uh, the funds are there to, you know, if Harry Kane leaves, you know, you talk about 120 million for Harry Kane, but today's market to replace him and his goals and his presence, that's not going to get you the three, four players you need for a rebuild. You need to spend 120 million to, you know, they're talking about 170 million for Haaland. And for me, the biggest problem with Spurs you know, front line not so bad. Midfield, inconsistent, but the potential's there. Is the bloody back four. And that's going to take a, a, a lot of money to sort out. There's a lot going on at Spurs. You know, there's there's quite a few murmurs and whatnot. And, um, you know, I'll be completely honest, a lot of the rumours that have been going around are well well wide of the mark. The the main things that I that I've heard that, I've had sort of confirmed by quite a few people now whenever I've spoken to, you know, season ticket holders and people really, you know, close to the club is the Con the Conte situation. It's happened once before and there is something going on at Spurs whereby the, the PR is a mess. It happened with Dybala. It's now happened with Conte. Um, about the baller, actually. That it, was, it was um, it was exactly was the same situation. Shit, say, yeah. um, it was there's something happening whereby there's there's and it's being explored as to why this keeps happening because something is being communicated within the club whereby people are saying the deals is the deals are nearly done. Um, there's excitement, but actually there's a there's a lack of knowledge as to how much more there is to go. Dybala's fell through at the, I can't remember the title of it now. What is it when they're like, they're sponsors and things like that, that, you know, image that was image rights. That's like, the one image. Yeah. I couldn't get my words out. Um, that was how he fell through. Conte's is a little bit more unusual because I don't think the demands from Conte were that unreasonable, to be honest. I mean, there was a small discrepancy in terms of, valuation of salary which I heard was something like three million euros and as far as I'm aware that would have been sorted the big problem that Conte had from from the sort of murmurs that I've heard was he wasn't happy that the assurances were there regarding where the money and you just alluded to this where the money from Harry Kane was going to go he didn't want Harry Kane to go but he understood that that might be something that was going to happen before he was going to take the job there wasn't a a belief that he, he would be able to convince Kane to stay. Um, so I don't think he would have even entertained conversation if it relied on Harry Kane. The big problem was Levy wasn't showing any sign that he believed that Conte was going to have the right tools to turn Tottenham round. And Daniel the Levy, other... Daniel Levy, I'm sorry. 
your Tottenham Football Club and Daniel Levy, I, I can't believe, I can't believe that, that, like, kudos for him for trying, but was it really a try? Because it's well documented with Conte, wherever he goes, Chelsea, uh, Inter Milan most recently, you know, Juventus, he spends money. And not that I'm saying that's a bad thing, but it is well known he spends money and he goes big. He is into projects where, you know, we're not talking about a four or five year plan and a project that way. No, 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 no. This guy is a serial winner. He wants to come in, have two or three years of success, and he wants it on a canter. He plays great football. For me, I think he's a brilliant manager. I think he's brilliant. But to instigate contact with him and know deep down inside when you're kind of stretching down your pockets for the loose change, that you're not going to be able to back the man. I mean... It's embarrassing. That's the problem that we have with it. The whole situation is embarrassing. You, you don't go to Conte you have to thinking... Him. The guy's just, he's won, he's won five league titles at seven clubs he's been at, and he's done it in a short time as well. He's not someone, and to be honest, I thought the whole plan was hire Conte for two years, let him get rid of all the dead wood, bring in players that he thought were going to stabilise the team and, and get back their image of being a, a top four team, potentially bring a trophy home. He don't stay around very long. He moves on. Lo and behold, I mean, it's another topic for another time, the whole Pochettino situation. But then Pochettino was out of contract in two years. He's made it perfectly clear he would be open to a return to Spurs. Personally, I'm happy he hasn't come back this time round. I thought it was way too soon. You know, the players that turned on him are still there. You know, there's, there's that. There's a bit of a snake-like atmosphere over at Spurs. And funny enough, the majority of that snake atmosphere is coming from the English players. And they're the same players that down tools when Poch got sacked. But my problem is the fact that Levy jumped on that, sacked Poch, and then realised he's made a mistake, is willing to keep his pennies in his pocket for a manager who's coming, wants to come in and say, look, I want to turn you good. But he's willing to pay out to sack Poch, hire Mourinho, sack Mourinho, and then Mourinho buy out Poch. But for me, Mourinho, again, was another one. I mean, not so much in recent years, but wherever he's gone, he's spent big money. Levy was banking on him getting enough out of Son, Kane, reinvigorating Deli Alley, and getting the best out of those players to make them a winner. It didn't happen. And again, with Mourinho, you've got to spend money. You approach these managers, you've got to back them. You've got to put your money where your mouth is. I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not, see where they go. I I'm not see. all doom and gloom with the Harry Kane situation. It had to come eventually. And I, I don't think any Spurs fan will begrudge Harry Kane for moving on. I think we've shown signs that we can still be a top four club without Harry Kane at times. Uh, there was a period, the not so much question. this season... Last season, we went for a period where we was guaranteed to have an injury to Harry Kane. Uh, well, the last few seasons, and and you know the team has stepped up. Uh, the problem I've got now is we haven't got a team to step up. There's a couple of players there who who rightly deserve to stay, but I can probably count them on one hand. In all honesty, I just I just think Levy. I mean, he's done the right thing whereby, and I've, I've, heard, I've heard today that he's 
he's taken a he's taken a step back from the from the football inside. I think the Super League situation put him in a real real tough tough situation. Um, you know, a lot of fans wanted Enoch out anyway, let alone after that. Um, and I think he's taken a step back with Paratici coming in and becoming director of football. One of the questions I'm interested in, from your perspective, is they sell Harry Kane, and mm. let's say they get 100 million, 110 million, or whatever we're talking, right? Mostly speaking, with that money, at most you're going to get two top players out of that, right? After mm. that, how much transfer budget have you got left? So, excluding Harry Kane money, what kind of money do you think Spurs have to play with? Jay, I might surprise you here, but I've, I've been quite vocal on this on my own Twitter before. Um, if I sold Harry Kane tomorrow and got, I mean, what are we talking? 150? I, I think this season has highlighted one thing to me. It doesn't matter how good your striker is. If you don't have that back line, you're not going anywhere. Mm. I think it's easier... And I don't mean this literally when I say what I'm about to say. I think it's easier to replace Harry Kane than it is to sort out that back line. If you, if you think yeah. about it this way, and just, just bear with me a second, because it might sound mad, and I'm probably going to have Spurs fans going, you what? You must be mad. But if you look at every club in the Premier League and you say to them, do you think you've got a good striker? that will score you 10-plus goals. I reckon you would easily have 50% out of those 20 clubs will turn around and say, yeah. I mean, you quickly flick through every Premier League club and you would, you would pretty much say they're, they're pretty happy that they've got um, a striker good goals. enough, right? You've got yeah. someone that's going to score goals. Now you ask them, do you think you've got a good centre-back pairing? How many of them do you honestly think would turn around and say, I'm confident in my back, my, my two centre-backs or my back line in general? Well, Liverpool fans would say that they've got the best of the punch, even though he's cropped at the moment, wouldn't they? But I suspect they'd have something to say about that. Liverpool would. I think Man City would. I even think Chelsea would be pretty happy. But then, I mean, you start creeping down a little bit and you've not even hit the bottom half of the table yet. I wouldn't say Tottenham are happy. I wouldn't say Man United are happy. I wouldn't say Arsenal are happy. I wouldn't say Everton are happy. We just but, touched on them. But, Mr Spurs, need I remind you, your challenge is the top four. So if we, if we base it, let's just base it on the top four of this season. City, United, Liverpool and Chelsea. Liverpool and Chelsea, I think they'd say when, well, for Liverpool, when um, Van Dijk is fit, they'd say, yep, they're pretty happy with theirs. Chelsea, as you alluded to, I think they probably would. City, the same as well. Ruben Diaz has come in and he's been amazing for them. United, happy with Maguire. Maybe they'd get another centre-back to replace the likes of Lindolf and Bailey and, you know, kind of shore that up a bit. Aside from that, I think they're, I think they'd be pretty happy. I just feel like with Spurs, they've got a lot to do. And I think at the moment, people can come for them either way. Like, you start looking at that Tottenham team and think, yeah, we can, we can get at them because it will take a while for those players up front to bed in. They're probably not going to score at a canter. But defensively, they're shocking as well. And I think there's a real... I'm, I'm, 
So I'm is- not convinced. Do you know what? I, I'm not convinced by the striker situation. I, I And this, I mean, again, I'm, I'm thinking, is it is it the right time to maybe talk about this now? Um, yeah, we'll save that for another pod because we're again... Yeah, we'll, we'll save it for another pod. But, but just but- just to quickly summarise what I was going to say, just so at least you know where I was going with it. I, I don't feel... Yes, traditionally the striker is always, you know, the number one and you hear your Harry Kane, your Harlands and things like that. But just like looking at it off the top... Of, well, thinking about it off the top of my head. I mean, Harry Kane finished on 23, 23 goals. The next striker, the actual next out-and-out striker behind Harry Kane was Patrick Bamford on 17. The players ahead of Bamford were Salah, Bruno Fernandes and Ming Son. Now, Man City haven't got anyone other than Gundogan in that top 10 for strikers and they uh, for goals and they won the league. You've got... I mean, looking at it, Man United, Bruno Fernandes, and then the next player is Rashford on 11. I honestly feel that if Son was the main man and we had someone in there, even if it was, and I'm not saying I want these players, but I'm just looking at the top goal scorers and thinking, right, okay, well, if if we had a a situation where Spurs said, okay, we want a striker and we brought in Calvert-Lewin or we brought in Patrick Bamford, I I don't know, I'm just using them as an example, Danny Ings or whatever on 12 goals. If if Danny Ings and Bamford and Calvert-Lewin were able to maintain them 16 goals and whatever they're getting, and Son was able to up his goal tally by another three or six even, or five, whatever, and we were able to shore up that back line, I honestly would say I think we would be in the top four. And that's not spending half of that money that we've got from Harry Kane on, on a striker. Interesting. Um, Interesting. I can't believe we've been speaking for 40 minutes already uh, and we haven't touched on <laughs> on the Palace situation. Um, How long have you got? <laughs> no, so I mean, let's let's talk about it. I mean, I'm not going to do much talking here. I'll probably be the host. I'll probably ask you the questions and stuff and let you go on. Um, but we'll try and keep this within about 15, 15 20 minutes or so and, and see how we get on. So <laughs> first question, how are you, how you feeling about the whole Palace situation now that Hodgson's gone? Um, it's the right time it needed to happen um, I think mm. we all knew probably that this season or this summer I should say was going to be the summer of transition it's nerve-wracking as it always is for Palace because you never quite know who they're going to go with and after Frank De Boer and that ounce of stability um, that went wrong after Allardyce um, there's always going to be an edge of caution but I'd roundly say it's it's an exciting time. Palace as a club are what's up? What eighth eighth season now in the Premier League, going into um, you know going into next season. We've had some great success um, at youth level, so at under twenty three and under eighteens level this year. You know we are without a doubt we are moving away from making big money signings, and it will be about signing young up and coming players with potential and going towards a more sustainable model, which does seem nerve-wracking. But, you know, Palace are, you know, if they get the right players in on their day, obviously we don't know what will happen with Zaha, but it's a good opportunity for a new manager to come in, I think. And um, 
refresh the team, which is needed. You know, it's been, we've had Hod Hodgson's been our longest serving uh, manager in the Premier League era, and he's, you know, he's done a great job. He gets a lot of stick for playing style. I was very vocal in that I wouldn't want him past this season, but you've got to look at the facts. You know, he's been there for four seasons, a net spend of minus £11.5 million. Let that sink in for a moment, you know. To be in that position is fantastic. That has allowed the owners to invest massively in the academy. Um, I think 20 to 30 million quid went into that. And we're now category one, which is great. There is the future, you know, I'm incredibly nervous for what the next season will bring. But if the appointment's right and we keep hitting the right noises and notes with the signings and young talent coming through, yeah, I, I'm excited to see where it goes, to be honest. So Nuno Santo. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's very... From what from what we we were hearing as this show started, we were hearing that it's pretty much done and dusted. Um, although I think in the last few minutes, well, the last ten minutes or so, I think you pointed out that there was something going on. Um, maybe you can clarify that in a moment. Um, but I'm I mean I'm led to believe it's it's due to be announced over the next few days and it looks like a lot of a lot of media seem to think it's going to be announced in the next few days if if it gets over the line palace only approached him because they didn't a bit like the ancelotti situation they didn't envisage it happening but with it happening it automatically meant that his profile style of play everything meant he was top of our pile so like Conte and Spurs then yeah, didn't expect so, him to leave in her and then all so of a sudden was, you know the likes of Sean Dyche Eddie Howe Steve Cooper Ishmael from you know Barnsley Swansea respectively they're the types of managers that were top of the list you know so are you saying it was a bit of a panic button approach like oh hang on we've got this guy that's I wouldn't say potentially panic, a higher caliber than our club panic would be the wrong word, but panic would be the wrong word but I just feel like they turned around and felt right we didn't expect this guy to be available. He'd be a great yeah. fit. Um, let's try and talk to him. If it didn't happen, I wouldn't panic um, because it's not as if they were planning to take him in the first instance. They've kind of explored it. The only danger here now, of course, is the negotiations, if you believe what the media has said, they've been prolonged over a two or three week period. If it were to fall out of favour, you then have to question where that positions the potential other managers and obviously with Everton looking for a manager still I, I must admit I was a little bit hesitant and I've probably been swung round by the uh, Twitter enthusiasm for him but when you take into account that they Wolves didn't really play the most attractive progressive of football um, and he's not forgetting despite all the money they have spent in the past two or three years they only finished one point above Palace this season. Um, that was so... that was my next my next question. Actually, you know, it's very easy for a manager to do well when he's having money thrown at him left, right, and centre. And I don't think anyone can deny that Wolves have not had money thrown at them left, right, and centre. Some of the signings they've made is it you know were a bit mind blowing to be honest. Um, I think I've just looked that on here Nuno's spent 303 million pounds on transfers since becoming Wolves manager now he how much of that 303 million pounds 
in percentage wise, would he get at Palace? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say the budget would be bigger than, say, 10% of that. So you're probably talking about absolute tops. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't have any inside trait on this, but I wouldn't. So that's, think, that's my first alarm bell. I there, wouldn't think. Right there, you know. Let's say 30 to 50 million quid. Yeah. Oh, all right. So 10, 10 know, 15% I, I maybe. So, I mean, you're, you're then relying on sales and i mean this is me maybe tongue-in-cheek saying this and you know you'll you'll you've got more credibility about palace tonight than i ever do um but i'm sitting there thinking okay so the majority of your money other than that 30 million maybe you've got to spend which let's be honest gets you a top player's left leg this you know in this day and age you're relying on a sale of wilfred sahar now a sale of wilf sahar two years ago in my opinion is double the sale of a Wolf Sahar sale this time round. I can't see any kind of reason why he would be worth more than or at best the same as what he was two years ago. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I just don't feel like that money that you could have got from that sale is there anymore. It's interesting you say that, you see, because this always turns into a great debate and every uh, uh, it happens with all players at all clubs, to be fair, when it comes to the key players. I think the key thing is, and a lot of outsiders, I don't think, comprehend this, but what you've got to take into account is with Wolf Saha, he is on circa £120,000 a week. So there's two things here. Transfer valuation. Now, of course, I agree with you. His value has decreased because he's gone from having two seasons ago, four years left on his contract, and now I think it's two years left on a, out of a five-year deal. But one of the things that has probably gone under the radar this year is that this season he has scored 11 goals, which in a Crystal Palace team is an achievement in itself. Added to that, that is his highest return for goals scored in the league, I think, since he's been at us. So, yes, on the flip side, I can understand, you know, you would see why his valuation would have gone down because of the nature of his contract uh, depression. But the fact is, he probably still guarantees Crystal Palace Premier League football. He, he is should be at his peak now. So, what's he, 28 now? So... You know, he really is reaching that point now. What's he worth in your eyes? Well, what what's his, what would you, if, if, if there was an offer that came in tomorrow, what would you say is the minimum you'd accept for him? 50 to 60 million. The, the reason I say that, let me explain that, because people will say I'm barking mad. He's got two years left. He's 28. What are you talking about? He guarantees, as I said earlier, Premier League football for Crystal Palace, which in itself is worth £100 million. And also, oh, the big major point I forgot is, Manchester United get, a, I think, 15 to 20% sell-on clause of his transfer fee. So, you know, you say 40 million quid, but you minus 25% of that, that becomes kind of 30 or 25 million. That's not a lot of money for Palace. That's not worth doing the deal. You know, as you said, 25 million to replace him will probably get you a left leg um, of someone else. So it's the financials of it. And the thing is here is... You know, we've played a blinder in a sense because his last contract he signed was five years, 120 grand a week. 
because of the way his contract is worked out, because of his age now, because of COVID and the you know the depression in the market, um, I think he's a bit stuck. So I actually don't think there'll be many clubs queuing at the door for him. I don't think. I, think I mentioned this about a year ago. I think me and you had a chat on Twitter about this before um, we started doing anything back with t- uh, you know total football debate again, whereby I said I think Zaha may have missed the boat because there was a period of time where a lot of clubs were lacking this type of player, and now it's almost diluted because there's a lot of clubs that have, not saying have a Zaha, but they have a very similar caliber of player that they, they turned to point, two years ago i think he could have signed for the likes of liverpool man city i really do because he was you know he was absolutely on fire so to all intents and purposes palace on the zaha front have been very clever because it has by fluke or by sheer genius of steve Parrish, worked in palace's favor a little bit and you know there was a story that went out a couple of or last week i think it was saying zaha's told Palace he wants out and he wants the, the transfer to be done by um, by the time the team comes back for pre-season. Well, it's all well and good saying that, but you need a club queuing up for you to buy you. And at the moment, uh, as I understand it, that is not the case. So any manager coming into Palace, and again, we go back to the managerial things, that's what we're here to discuss. Um, I don't think the Zaha issue is going to be a massive, massive issue. And I'd be... If I was a better man, I'd actually, unless Everton came in with big money, to be honest, or Tottenham or Arsenal, the three clubs that are looking to rebuild, I actually think he will, I'd be fairly confident in saying he's a Palace player come the end of the window. So just just briefly then, just to sort of wrap this up a little bit, because, you know, we've, we, we obviously will dig into clubs in more specific detail once the Euros is done. Uh, I think we'll identify... Um, you know, each individual club and, and talk about them a little bit, um, may even get a few guests on that, that you know, support their clubs. Because I think as much as me and you can talk about clubs, it's always great to hear from actual fans. Me and you are fortunate enough to be fans of, of two different teams as well, who we've spoken passionately about today. So, I mean, that's pretty much the three topics that we wanted to talk about on this first show as we go along i think jace you know we we've had a brief discussion about where we where we think we will take this show from here i think we're we're in agreement that as it stands right now this will maybe be a weekly show yeah um give or take depending on obviously commitments things like that we'll follow the euros in a in a bit of detail where we can we'll also keep on top of this managerial merry-go-round I'll call it that for once and also you know I've got to be honest I've said this a few times I don't think anyone involved in the Euros will have any kind of transfer dealings done until they come back yeah once the Euros start on Friday I I can't see the transfer movements being too busy to be honest Um, there might be a few clubs out there uh, that will look at potential bargains that aren't playing in the Euros because I think prices will be inflated. But yeah, we'll, we'll keep a close eye on that. Uh, but I think for the next few weeks or so, the main topic of discussion will be Euros. It's coming home. Um, it's coming home. <laughs> potentially how it's coming home or, or, or gone is. within the first week. Anything you want to add, Jace, just in case you, there's anything I forgot in regards to how, no. how we see this show going? 
no, thank you for your time. Um, I look forward to Spurs demise over the next week or two. And uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see uh, happy Harry Kane injury day in a couple of weeks after his first game for England. Yeah, maybe I'll find someone else to run the show when when Harry Kane potentially leaves, because uh, I might go into mourning for a week. Um, but yeah, it's going to happen. Anyone that doesn't think it will, unless there's some miracle, um, it's going to happen. But that's that again. We'll we'll we'll, we'll tackle that when it comes. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll wrap it up there, and then we'll uh, revisit you know episode two next week, and we'll be what a week in four or five days into the Euros come then. So um, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll be we'll either be on top of the world after. Sunday's game against Croatia, or we'll be back to where where we always seem to be. Yeah, we'll, um, we'll see. We'll see. It's coming we'll home. Be positive. It's coming home. Oh, of course, yeah, it's coming home. It's already home. It's at Wembley, but never mind. Um, all right, Jace. Well, we'll leave it there, and uh, we'll catch up next week. Ta-ra. Cheers for listening. Bye bye.